let you remind uh, let me remind you that we've been observing a pattern throughout the five first books of the Bible known as the Pentateuch, uh, or sometimes called the Torah or the books of Moses. And that pattern, especially starting in Exodus, has been an intertwining of narrative portions where history is being related, where stories are being told, uh, and legal material, whether it's the laws uh, of Israel given specifically and mostly in the books of Exodus and Deuteronomy, uh, or the, um, the priestly conduct, the rituals in these things, mostly in Leviticus and Numbers. And so we open in chapter 19 with another ritual, but it's important to realize why this is here. If you're just reading through the book and you hit chapter 19, it can feel like a speed bump. It's, it's hard to understand why there's another law of purification here, and specifically one involving the dead. And so remember what's been going on in the book of Numbers in the weeks past. We've seen um, a collection of rebellions, both, uh, both of the people leading to a plague, as well as of the Levites leading to the destruction of the sons of Korah. And then not only are those things behind chapter 19, but forward is 40 years of wandering around the wilderness and the sole happening of those 40 years is this older generation that refused to enter the promised land dying off, okay? And so it's with this current reality of a whole bunch of corpses and the future reality of more to come that dictates the need for this passage, which is effectively about purification for those who have been exposed to the dead. Okay, so let's read along in verse 1. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying, This is the statute of the law that the Lord has commanded. Tell the people of Israel to bring you a red heifer without defect, in which there is no blemish, and on which a yoke has never come. <coughs> so there's a call here for a cow. And specifically, unlike the other animals that have come up in the sacrificial system of Israel so far, this one is, uh, is known for its color. It's not just to be a cow, uh, but a red heifer, a red cow. Um, now, most likely, most likely this is a brown cow. And the reason I say that is because in Hebrew, they only have one word for red, which also includes brown things. Um, and brown cows are something we understand. In fact, the early rabbis take this phrase here uh, that seems like a duplicate, where it says, without defect, and then which there is no blemish, and they make a distinction based on the fact that this is a red or a brown cow. Okay? The distinction is no blemish here means nothing on the cow that is not the right color. Okay? And so the rabbis would inspect these red heifers to look for even a single black or white hair, let alone a spotted cow. Right? All of those would be out, but this has to be a purely red or possibly brown cow, as well as without defect. Okay? And so healthy um, no sign or blemish or bruising or any of that, just as we've seen as the standard for other sacrifices. And then finally it adds, on which a yoke has never come. Okay? The idea there seems to be that this animal needs to be fully, completely devoted to the Lord. This is not an animal's retirement through the sacrifice route. Okay? This isn't to be an animal where they go, well, he's no good in the field anymore, so I guess we can use it for, right? This is supposed to be a set-apart perfect 
offering. Okay? And we're told here in verse 3, you shall give it to Eleazar the priest. Okay? Now, if you've been studying along with us, you know that that's actually an odd little thing for it to say because usually we talk about Aaron being the high priest. Eleazar is Aaron's son, and so why is such a significant ritual, one that deals with the most extreme version of impurity, uh, exposure to death, which we'll see has a much longer and more intricate process of dealing with, why is it that that's not handled by the high priest? Uh, The most likely reason is because the high priest is not to be around death at all. Okay, and so he's not involved with this ritual. A lower priest of lower status or of lower holiness um, takes the place here. And so what we see is from this cow, they take some of the blood, verse 4, with his finger and sprinkle some of the blood towards the front of the tent of meeting seven times. Okay? And so the blood is manipulated in a way where it's flicked towards the temp- tent of meeting or the holy place. And then verse 5, the heifer shall be burned Uh, In his sight, its skin, its flesh, and its blood with its dung shall be burned. Now that is entirely unique in all of the sacrifices of Israel. Every other sacrifice, in fact every other meal that involved an animal for Israel, the blood was to be drained. Okay? And so before a sacrifice went on the altar, the animal's throat would be slit, the blood would be drained at the base of the altar, and then the rest of the blood-drained animal would be offered on the altar. But here, this animal is specifically said blood included. Okay? There's a little bit of blood sprinkled towards the holy place, but the rest is in the animal. We'll talk about why that is in a second, but notice verse 6. The priest shall take cedar wood and hyssop and scarlet yarn and throw them into the fire, uh, <coughs> burning the heifer. And so on top of that, they take a piece of wood, specifically here cedar, Uh, they take a plant known as hyssop, and then they take a scarlet piece of yarn, and that all goes into the fire as well. Now what's interesting here is both cedar wood, which is red wood, and scarlet yarn, which is red yarn, uh, seems to be pointing in the same direction that the blood is, and possibly even the cow itself. There's a pattern here of red, 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 okay? All of the elements that are involved here have that aspect to them. Verse 7, the priest shall wash his clothes and, ba- clothes and bathe his body in water, and afterwards he may come into the camp. But a priest shall be unclean until evening. And so just going through this process, probably because it involves the blood being left in, renders the priest in an unclean condition, but just a temporary one. Like we saw in the book of Leviticus, there's certain things that make you unclean that are just a part of normal daily life, and so a bath and some time will take care of it, okay? We'll see that pattern in this sacrifice further, but we still don't really know what's going on. The whole ritual is laid out, but we don't know the why of the ritual until the end, so we need to push a little bit further. Verse 8, the one who burns the heifer shall wash his clothes in water and bathe his body in water and shall be unclean until evening. And a man who is clean shall gather up the ashes of the heifer and deposit them outside the camp in a clean place. And they shall be kept for the water, for impurity of the congregation, for the people of Israel. It is a sin offering. So, here's uh, here's where things get somewhat significant. 
we see here that the ashes are gathered up and they're deposited outside the camp, but in a clean place. Okay? So they're not left in the tabernacle, but outside the camp. And so we are touching two very different locations here. One, in the tabernacle itself with the sprinkling of blood, and then the ashes afterwards dealt with outside the camp. The reason I point this out to you is because there are three rituals uh, in the law that we've encountered so far that involve similar circumstances. Okay? So, for example, when you're dealing with a leper and a leper is declared cleansed, we see in that also scarlet yarn and hyssop. Okay? It's part of the ritual. We also see there being two birds involved in that offering, not just one. One that is killed and the other which is let go out in the wilderness, away from the camp. Okay? The other ritual that uh, reminds us of this is the Day of Atonement where in that case there are two goats that are sacrificed. One that's sacrificed in the tabernacle, its life is taken, and the other who's let loose in the wilderness. Okay? And so in the same way here, we have this touching of place between the most holy and sacred center of Israel and the outside world. And like with the leprosy cleansing, we have these other elements involved. Okay? So, what do they do with these ashes? They put them in a clean place outside the camp, and then, verse 9 continues, they shall be kept for water, for impurity, for the congregation of the people of Israel. It is a sin offering. Now, the word there for sin offering, hatat, uh, is probably better translated as a purification offering. That's what clues us in on what's going on here. Okay? If you were to go back to Leviticus and look at the purification offering, you'll see both similarities and differences with what's going on here. Okay? The primary difference is that the blood is left in the animal, but that the animal is exposed of outside of the camp, that's business as usual. But it's here where we finally understand uh, what it's for. It says in verse 9, they shall be kept for the water of impurity for the congregation of the people of Israel. Now, what is the water for impurity? Verse 10. The one who gathers the ashes of the heifer shall wash his clothes and be unclean until evening, and this shall be a perpetual statute for the people of Israel and for the stranger who sojourns among them. So every step of the way, the person who deals with this animal becomes temporarily unclean and needs to deal with that before they can enter back into their role. Now we understand what it's for, though. Verse 11. Whoever touches the dead body of any person shall be unclean seven days. He shall cleanse himself with the water on the third day and on the seventh day, and so be clean. But if he does not cleanse himself on the third day and on the seventh day, he will not become clean. And so here's what happens. They take the ashes of this dead heifer with the blood in it, and they mix it with water, and they keep that water on hand. And it's known here as the water for impurities, or we could call it the water of purification. If you're into vampire flicks, effectively we're talking about holy water here. Okay? It's been sanctified specifically for this purpose of purification. Okay? And so this sacrifice that we've read about here isn't something they do anytime somebody touches a dead body. It's something they do when the supplies of the water for impurity run low. Okay? This is unique in the rituals of Israel in that it's not a present tense, but a future tense preparation. Okay? It goes into the stores 
to be ready for whenever this is needed or necessary. What we see here is that exposure to a dead body makes someone unclean for seven days and then uniquely they have to engage with cleansing not just at the end of those seven days but twice along the way on the third day and on the seventh day. Okay. Now, why the third and why the seventh isn't stated, and I don't necessarily feel the need to speculate tonight, although it is interesting that both the number three and the number seven kind of run through this whole passage. But more importantly, it does show us that this type of impurity, exposure to a corpse, ranks higher than almost any of the other impurities we've encountered. Okay? Exposure to a corpse is... Uh, is a happening impurity, not a lasting one. And so, for example, if you have an open wound or if you're a leper, you are unclean for the duration of that period, but once that period is over, seven days and you're clean. Okay? There are small things that you encounter in life that make you, as we said, unclean until evening, but this is the only one that requires uh, more complexity both sprinkling on the third day for cleansing as well as on the seventh. In fact, notice how it continues here in verse 11. Whoever touches a dead person, the body of anyone who has died and does not cleanse himself, defiles the tabernacle of the Lord and the person shall be cut off from Israel because the water for impurity was not thrown on him. He shall be unclean and his uncleanness is still on him. Okay? And so if this ritual isn't handled rightly, it not only doesn't move them back into a status of purity, but it also says that they will be cut off from Israel. The way that kareth, this word for cut off, is used, it's a range. Okay? And so sometimes kareth means exclusion. Okay? They shall be isolated from Israel. They shall be excluded from the people. But there are some clear occasions where it means premature death that God will carry out a sentence, okay? Either way, cut off is the extremest expression of consequence for defiling the tabernacle. In fact, as moderns and as Christians, uh, we read this and it all seems strange. What's the big deal, okay? Maybe we would recognize that after you handle a corpse, you should wash your hands, but why go through this whole process? Why seven days? Why, um, why this uh, ash of a dead cow in water? And the significance, once again, has to do with um, the unique aspects of who Israel is. Israel is a nation where God is dwelling in the midst. The tabernacle is unique in all of history in that the presence of God is right there, unadulterated and fully exposed, and yet Israel, like every nation, is a nation full of sinful people, okay? The ritual law, the things that involve purity and impurity, all of these things are effectively object lessons that, um, that teach us the difference between us and God. In fact, if you didn't know that, the word holy literally means other. So when we say that God is holy, we mean completely different, wholly different, if you will. If you have two spoons and one of them is holy, the holy one is unique. It's set apart for a different purpose, okay? If God makes us as his people holy, like the New Testament says, it means that we're set apart, we're unique, we're set apart for a purpose, 
And so the aspect here of clean and unclean is like an ongoing daily ritual. Why is death a part of that ritual? Because the God of the Bible is the God who is the giver of life. Okay? Because his presence is as the God who is life, whom all life comes from. And so death is incongruent with the person of God. And so this ritual is recognizing that incongruence and pointing to it, just like all of the other impurities we've seen. Now, <clears throat> it goes on to clarify here how you know if you need to go through this process. What sort of an encounter with the dead qualifies as needing or of making you impure and needing cleansing? Verse 14, this is the law when someone dies in a tent. Everyone who comes into the tent and everyone who is in the tent shall be unclean seven days. Okay? So if it's indoors, anyone who comes into the space enters into this aspect of uncleanness. What about outdoors? Verse 15. Every, uh, sorry, there's, there's more here. Every open vessel that has no cover fastened on it is unclean. Okay? And so if your uncle who's living in your tent dies and you have certain containers, um, Tupperware, open. Anything in that is now unclean. If you have sealed containers, jars with lids, that's not contaminated, okay? And it continues here, and it says in verse 16, whoever's in the open field touches someone who was killed with a sword or who died naturally or touches a human bone or a grave shall be unclean seven days. So notice the difference here. Being in the presence of of a dead body inside a tent is enough to make you unclean. But out in the open, it's only actual physical contact. You touch a corpse, or notice here, you touch a bone, which means this could be someone who died a long time ago. Or even if you touch a grave, right, which is really just a container for a corpse and probably a sealed one, but still you are contaminated, okay? All of these are recognition of the reality of death. And just a side note, keep in mind the fact that in the modern world, it's not that death is less prevalent, but it is absolutely less visible. It is much more private, and exposure to the dead is not as common as it was then. We, use, we tend to distance ourselves from the dead. They don't die in our homes surrounded by families, but the large majority of people in America die in hospitals, right? Under the care of experts. Um, and then what happens next, oftentimes, whereas, um, you know, it used to be really common to have uh, the body of your loved one at the funeral or at the memorial, that's becoming less and less common. We often have memorials where the body has already been taken care of and these types of things. And so, I say that for two reasons. First, because we need to recognize how routine and regular this practice would have been. I mean, when was the last time you encountered a corpse? Okay. We don't generally have this happen but a few times over the course of our life. But for Israel, there's no hospitals, there's no morgues, there's none of this. Uh, you know, their funeral processions, everyone involved in the procession is unclean. Right? Everyone who's part of the family is unclean. And so the commonness of it is one thing. And then the second thing is, therefore, the value of the symbolism is much more profound. 
It's amazing to think about what it would have been like to be alive in the camps of Israel and understand this process of clean and unclean and be constantly aware of these factors and going through it. Effectively, what's happening is Israel is developing a sense, maybe even an intuition, for what is and what is not, for what's like God and what is not, for what is congruent with the life of Israel and what is not. You know, the filter that they have for judging these things is just not something we operate on very often. There are places in our culture where this paradigm of clean and unclean operate, but they're relatively rare. And so, for example, sex offenders sometimes carry these connotations of isolation. In fact, sometimes they even carry these connotations of contamination. Right? Being associated with a sex offender or a pedophile can, can reflect on community in the same way as these things. But it's not like it was. But for Israel, there is this constant reminder of who God is and, uh, and how different that is for us. And this process gives both a reminder of that and a way back into communion with other people and with God. And so here we get the ritual specifically laid out in verse 17. For the unclean, they shall take some ashes of the burnt sin offering, and fresh water shall be added in a vessel. And a clean person can take hyssop and dip it in the water and sprinkle it on the tent and on the furnishings, on the person who were there and on whoever touched the bone or the slain or the dead or the grave. And the clean person shall sprinkle it on the unclean on the third day and on the seventh day. So notice lastly that this ritual couldn't be done for yourself. You couldn't just pull up to the Jewish market, buy this heifer, you know, holy water, and then apply it to yourself or even to your home. Only someone in clean status could use this. Notice also here that it's not required that it be a priest. It doesn't have to be a holy person, just a clean person. And so anything that's been exposed, a clean person sprinkles both on the third and the seventh and it says in summary at the end of verse 19, thus on the seventh day he shall cleanse him, and then he, the cleanser, shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water, and at evening he shall be clean. Okay? And so, so even his exposure here, it's not as significant as an exposure to a corpse, but it still requires time and bathing. Verse 20, if a man who is not uh, who is unclean does not cleanse himself, that person shall be cut off from the midst of the assembly since he has defiled the sanctuary of the Lord because the water for impurity has not been thrown on him. He is unclean and it should be a statute forever for them. The one who sprinkles the water for impurity shall wash his clothes and the one who touches the water for impurity shall be unclean until evening. <coughs> and whatever the unclean person shall touch shall be unclean and anyone who touches it shall be unclean until evening. Now, why is this significant for us today? One of the primary reasons is because the New Testament takes this language of impure, of unclean, of cleansing, and of washing, and applies it significantly to Jesus. Okay. Takes it out of the world of ritual and the external, and takes it into the world of, um, of spiritual realities. And so, Jesus says... Uh, speaking of the kosher laws, that what comes into a man, what you eat, doesn't defile, defile a person, but it's the things that come out of your heart that defile you. And so it's significant that beginning with the prophets, like Isaiah and Jeremiah, 
uh, and then expressed through Jesus' ministry in the Gospels and then reaffirmed uh, by Jesus' disciples in the epistles, there's this understanding of what God has done in Jesus Christ in sprinkling our hearts. Those are the words that's used, sprinkling our hearts, of cleansing our conscience, of washing us with the water of the word. Okay? All of that imagery speaks to us generally because we know what clean is. But more deeply, when we understand these things, Jesus, like the red heifer, dies. And not in the temple, but outside the camp, right? Bears the uncleanness, becomes the impure thing. His blood is spilled. And significantly, because of that, we're purified. And not just from exposure to the dead, but from our own personal corpses, from the death that lives within us. We're not just um, cleansed temporarily, right? Every time you encounter the dead, you have to go through this process, but permanently. But these categories of purification and cleansing, this is where they come from. And I've mentioned this before, and we'll see this especially as we get into the next two chapters, but Numbers is a significant book for understanding the ministry of Jesus. It can be, I think, one of the most foreign and difficult to understand, but it's amazing how often the New Testament and Jesus himself makes use of this book to go, if you want to understand why I've come and what I'm offering the world, you should probably read the book of Numbers. And so this ritual is laid out in preparation for this 40-year period where the older generation will die off and now we get the death, the first death listed of one of Israel's leaders, specifically Miriam. Now, remember, Miriam is the older sister of both Aaron and Moses. Okay? And so there's this family of leaders. Moses is this great prophet called by God. Aaron is the high priest. And then Miriam has this role as prophetess. And by the end of tonight, death will touch all three of them. Okay, But the first one here is in verse 20. And the people of Israel, the whole congregation, came into the wilderness of Zin in the first month, and the people stayed in Kadesh, and Miriam died there and was buried there. Now, just a side note chronologically here. It mentions that this happens in the first month, but we're not told the year. There's really two options. Okay, Either this is the third year, and we know that because we've already seen the first month of the first year back in Exodus and the first month of the second year here in Numbers. And so we should just assume this is the third year or significantly this may be the 40th year. Okay, The 40 years of wandering is just something that happens. There's no time stamps during that period. We haven't seen any of the last few chapters. They will be almost entirely missing from the stories that are to approach but maybe the idea here is the first month of this final year before they enter into the land. And we'll see relatively quickly that that's what will happen. That this 40-year period, we don't have an update every year. Okay? We don't have timestamps five years in, ten years in. The time just kind of passes. And we have a couple, just a smattering of incidents that happen along the way with no chronological importance. And so maybe here when it says the first month, it means the first month of the last year. But it also might mean the first month of the third year. And what happens is while they're there, Miriam dies and is buried. Okay. And that's all that's pointed out here. 
Now, initially, initially it may be that Miriam would have been one who would enter into the land. Joshua and Caleb, Moses and Aaron, and potentially Miriam were not part of the rebellion the resistance in Numbers 14 to entering into the land of promise that led to the judgment, none of you shall see the land, only your children, everyone from age 20 and up. But as we saw, it's not merely a rebellion we find in the rabble. It's not merely a rebellion we find in the common people of Israel, but then we find it, as we did last week, in the Levites and then in Miriam herself as she comes to the table and says, look, why does Moses get to be the leader? And God deals with her in a significant way. But nonetheless, she dies in the wilderness, never having seen the land. And then verse 2. Now there was no water for the congregation, and they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. And the people quarreled with Moses and said, Would that we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness that we should die here? Both we and our cattle. And why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? So they make a handful of complaints here. Um, One of them is they just say, I wish we had just died in the judgment, right? That's just happened to our brothers. That's just happened a few chapters ago. And then they say, why have you brought us out into the wilderness? Now, we were told in verse 1, this is the wilderness of Zin. We see the people here, they've come up to the borders of the promised land, and now they're basically walking away back towards Egypt. And so they're back to the same place where Moses brought water out of the rock back in the book of Exodus. In fact, this is the third part, the third piece of the happenings in the wilderness that has been repeated. And so the complaining for food that led to manna and quail and then was repeated in the giving of quail and uh, in the book of Numbers, those two go together. And in the same way, um, the complaint about water and and the striking of the rock and here the speaking to the rock, those go together. The difference is the first time... uh, Israel effectively gets off without major consequence. These are things leading up to the giving of the covenant at Mount Sinai, but here in Numbers, the consequences are severe. But as we read this, it should sound familiar. We've been here before. In fact, the pattern, not just of them complaining about a need for water, but them complaining in general, has been a constant and regular one. Their criticism of Moses' leadership has been a constant and a regular one. Notice what they say in verse 5. Why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It's no place for grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, and there's no water to drink. Now, don't miss the significance of that. They blame Moses for not being in a place where they can plant plants, right? They're in a wilderness. But that's not Moses' fault. God offered them a land flowing with milk and honey where there would be great great yield of the land, and they refuse to enter in, but they accuse Moses of this. And so Moses begins as he always begins in verse 6. Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting, and they fell on their faces. Okay. Once again, recognizing the seriousness and the significance of these complaints, they lay before the tabernacle to intercede 
for the people to submit themselves to the Lord. And it says that the Lord appeared to them and the Lord spoke to Moses saying. Now notice here, what happens right here is Moses and Aaron and God. They're away from the people. They're at the tent of meeting. This is a, a private conversation. And God speaks in verse 7. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give them drink and the congregation and the cattle. Now do you see what's significantly missing from this conversation? Judgment. Right? They recognize the seriousness of this complaining. There are instances prior to this. They know how this goes. In fact, even the complaint of Israel involved, we wish we were already dead like those who died in the judgment. But God just gives him practically how he's going to deal with their thirst. He says, go, speak to the rock, uh, take the staff, and the water will come out as before. It will water the people uh, and their animals. So verse 9, Moses took the staff from before the Lord as he commanded him. Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Hear now, you rebels, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice. And water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank and their livestock. Okay. So there's things that seem similar and there's things that seem different here. First off, it's relatively rare for Moses to address the people before he does something. It happens on occasions, but most of the time, what we read is, God says do this and Moses did this just as he commanded him and it moves on. But here, he clears his throat <clears throat> and he makes a proclamation. But he strikes the rock and the water comes out, and we would expect the story to end there. It does not. Notice what happens in verse 12. <clears throat> the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. Wait, what? Here, God gives a divine pronouncement and he says, disqualified. Moses, Aaron, neither of you are going to enter into the promised land. Okay, and so Miriam dies before she gets there. Now Moses and Aaron are told they're going to share the same fate. Specifically, look at the critique that God makes. The Lord said to Moses, verse 12, because you did not believe in me and uphold me as holy in the eyes of people of Israel. When did that happen? What has happened here? What is the, the cause of this judgment? And the thing we have to recognize here is first a similarity that is actually a difference. Okay? Moses' critique of the people here as rebels, his frustration with the people, that's not new. There are occasions even where Moses has come before God and said, the burden you have given me is too great. Where he said, you expect me to carry these people. I don't want to carry these people. They don't belong to me. They're your problem. But this is different. Why? Because this is what he does before the people. This is what he does, if you will, using the Catholic term, ex cathedra. Publicly 
and as an aspect of his office. What he does here is not privately in his own life, in his conversations with God. It's not like the complaints that are made in the book of Psalms. Here he's operating publicly as God's representative and more importantly spokesperson. And that's what makes these complaints so significant. When we read God's commands to Moses, we find no anger or frustration in God. When Moses says, Hear now, you rebels, he's not conveying the message of God or God's frustration. He's only conveying his own. And not only that, notice something else that's surprising. Look very closely uh, at verse 10 again. They assemble before the rock. He said to them, Hear now, you rebels, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? Once again, absolutely unique. In fact, when you look at the prophets of Israel, there is a tremendous tendency for them to recognize that they don't get the credit. To stand up and, like the apostles do in the book of Acts chapter 4 when they say, do you think it's because of something great in us that this man who was lame is now walking? Right? They distance themselves from that. Moses' behavior uh, in the uh, Red Sea crossing, I think, is significant. What does he say to Israel? He says, stand still and see the salvation of God. But here, he doesn't reference God at all. He acts as if he's the one with the power, as if he's the one who should be frustrated with their complaints. You see, the problem here is one of misrepresentation. God is not angry, but Moses as a spokesperson comes off as angry, and so the people assume that God is angry. God is the one doing the miracle, but Moses doesn't point to God appropriately as he should. And so that's why it says here that he did not believe in him and specifically uphold him as holy in the eyes. Now God is just another angry man, just another angry leader. God is often angry, but his angry is not like our angry. That's why in the book of Romans it says that the wrath of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God. There's a difference between the wrath of man and the wrath of God. Ours is tainted with selfishness, with vanity, with inappropriate measures and uncontrol. What we see here is Moses getting just the slightest bit of vengeance on the people by publicly shaming them, giving them a tongue lashing. And it doesn't reflect God's heart. It's out of line. Now, there's another reason that might be significant here. The two tellings, the one in the book of Exodus, God says, Moses, strike the rock with your staff and out gushes water. Here, uniquely and apparently importantly, God says, speak to the rock and the water will come. And we see here instead that Moses strikes the rock twice. Or maybe, because you can literally translate it, strikes the rock for the second time. The narrator there is pointing out the significance of that. The rock has already been struck. Now when we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and it points to the book of Numbers to give us warnings, it talks about the fact that just like we as Christians have been baptized, somewhat similarly, Israel was all baptized by walking through the same Red Sea. Just as all of us are in Christ, because we've been grafted into his salvation, so also there's a sense where all of Israel was in Moses. 
And then it says, just as we are nourished in Christ. So also Israel was nourished by a rock that followed them and gave them water in the wilderness. And then Paul just drops this bomb. And that rock was Christ. Okay. Now, I don't think the idea there is that Jesus preemptively, before his incarnation, took on the form of a rock and rolled around the wilderness following Israel. When he says that rock was Christ, he's saying there is an import in the historical reality of the rock that points to who Jesus is. Okay? We talked about this a few weeks ago, but what we're talking about is called typology. In fact, that's what Paul labels it there in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. He says, these things that happened, happened as types, tupos. Okay? A tupos is the imprint from when you hit a piece of metal with a hammer. Okay? It represents the shape of the hammer that hit it. Okay? The other words that the New Testament uses for this same concept uh, are schema, where we get our word schematic. Okay? It's not the prototype even, it's not the object, but it is the blueprint. And another one that Paul likes to use is the word shadow. And so he says these things like the tabernacle or the sacrifices or the red heifer, these are the shadow, but the reality is Christ. And so it may be that there's a third way that Moses doesn't represent God here. That the imagery that God intended with this typology of the rock did involve water flowing from the rock when? When it was struck. But it was only struck once. And here it was just speaking to the rock that would have brought forth the water. Okay? Jesus, unlike the sacrifices in the Old Testament, doesn't need to offer himself over and over and over again. His sacrifice, his death, his blood, his striking was so sufficient that as he proclaimed in his dying breath, it is finished. It's done. And so when we need our thirst quenched today, we don't need another savior. We don't need another crucifixion. We don't need uh, Jesus to take on our punishment all over again. We just need to ask. And so it may be that the third way that Moses does not represent God here is that he doesn't represent the symbolism accurately. Now, side note, we'll see this in just a minute, but you cannot read the Old Testament without understanding that symbolism is significant. Because all the time God is going, here's how I want you to handle this, and it's just the most arbitrary and strange way. Okay? Never do we read, uh, this plant has healing properties and will treat the wound, so go and find it. We read, hey, you see that branch on that tree? Throw it into the water and it won't be poison anymore. Right? There's this symbolism to it. Now, it's going to get really profound in, in a page. But here, this may be one of the few places where the image is broken and God feels the need to go, okay, that was not according to the plan. Everyone needs to know significantly that he got this wrong because you need to understand what's really going on here. But we can understand where Moses is at, can't we? We all know what it's like to have had enough to overreact. In fact, let's remember here that he's mourning, maybe even by a day's time, the death of his sister. He's not necessarily 
you know, in a fully composed state when this goes on. This may be the veritable straw that broke the camel's back, right? He's in a vulnerable place, and this is just not the time to deal with these things, and so he deals with it poorly. But here, once again, we get a reminder of the holiness of God, how different he is. God doesn't have bad days, right? There's no bad time to bring before his requests, and unlike we've experienced even in our own parents and in our own friends, where you come to them for a usual request and they just bite your head off, that's not who God is. God is never changing, always constant, always love, always good, always righteous. But even a man like Moses, a man who we may take as a hero, a man who was one of the greater leaders of the entire Bible, one of the most significant characters, it doesn't mean he is sinless or perfect. One of the things that's profound about the Christian scriptures, Old Testament and New, against many other sacred writings is that the leaders of these religious movements, the heroes of them, in the Bible, they never make it out smelling like a rose. There's this tendency to hide the sins of those in religious power. Have you noticed that? Do we not still struggle with that, both in the church and in the Catholic church and in other religions? Right? There's this tendency to go, no, we can't talk about how awful a person they were because it will taint things. And obviously it does. In fact, one of the scariest sentences in all of the Old Testament is when Nathan is speaking to David and he says, this adultery you've committed with Bathsheba, the murder that you've committed, it, committed to cover it up, he says, because of you, the nations will blaspheme. You know what Nathan's saying there? He's saying, everybody knows that you're the king of Israel. And now they're going to go, I knew their God wasn't real. Here's the evidence. Just another hypocrite. King David, great and mighty and holy and a man after God's own heart. Yeah, right. There's no God. And so sin is always significant. The point that I'm trying to make uh, is that all the characters of Scripture, even the leaders, even the leaders don't come out clean. Think of Peter. Peter is a total mess when Jesus calls him as a, as a disciple, he's impulsive, he's a coward, he's fearful. And although he's a changed man, Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, and boldly speaks and says, the man whom you have crucified, right? Very different than on the night when Jesus is under trial and they say, do you know this guy Jesus? And he's like, nope, never heard of him, right? But Paul tells us in the book of Galatians, then an occasion comes where some of the people who are Jews and believers in Jesus and are, and are maintaining the kosher laws and the distance from Gentiles, when they come and visit, and against Peter's better knowledge, read Acts chapter 9, 10, and 11, okay? He distances himself from the Gentiles and refuses to eat with them. This is Peter. Peter of the inner circle of the disciples. Paul. Paul writes half of the New Testament, and he gets in an argument about ministry with Barnabas, Barnabas who gave him the opening and brought him to the church in Antioch, about how to respond to young Mark who bailed out on their trip when things got hard because he's young Mark, and he goes, no way, he can't come with us anymore, he's disqualified. And he separates himself from them, and he goes his own way. It's hard for me to read that and not go, 
Yeah, I think you probably should have been a bit more gracious, Paul. If anyone, you should know what it looks like to be undeserving of a second chance. But the recognition here is one that should give you courage. Okay, we don't have superhumans in the Bible who don't struggle the way you struggle, who don't screw up the way you screw up, who never deal with the difficulties you deal with. You have your grade A sinners, just like us, who not only does God save, but he uses. But the seriousness of this, imagine how Moses feels. In that one moment, in that blink of an eye, it's over. Now he's not going to get to see the fulfillment of the promise that he's been devoting the, third, uh, the last third of his life to. And Aaron as well. And so verse 13, these are the waters of Meribah where the people of Israel quarreled with the Lord and through them he showed himself holy. Verse 14, Moses sent messengers from Kadesh to the king of Edom. Okay, so what's happening here is as they travel around, they come up against the kingdom of Edom. And so re remember a few things here as we set this up, okay? First off, as they're traveling, they're two million strong. This is a very big group of people. And the, the tension here is either we pass through the territory of Edom and through their cities, or we detour around the entire kingdom, okay? It's both a time issue, although they have lots of time, they're just waiting to die, uh, and it's also a convenience issue, okay? It's good land, land where people actually live versus the land where nobody lives, okay? It's more wilderness if they go this way. And so they come to Edom. Now, one other piece of context here, who is Edom? The Edomites are the descendants of Esau, okay? The Israelites are the descendants of Esau's brother, Jacob, Okay, there are familial ties here. And although it goes back relatively, you know, a couple hundred years, there's still this significant relationship. They are both direct children of Isaac and therefore sons of Abraham. And so they're not coming to strangers. They're coming to long-distant family. And so <coughs> he sends a messenger to the king of Edom. Thus says your brother Israel... See how he speaks here? He emphasizes the family aspect. You know all the hardship that we have met, how our fathers went down to Egypt and we lived in Egypt a long time and the Egyptians dealt harshly with us and with our fathers. This is not, you know, some guy claiming to be your uncle showing up on the front door. He knows the Edomites have kept up on the history of Israel. He knows the mistreatment that they've endured in Egypt is public knowledge. And so he says, look, you know where we've come from. You know where we're going. And then verse 16, when we cried to the Lord, he heard our voice and sent an angel and brought us out of Egypt. And here we are in Kadesh, a city on the edge of your territory. Please let us pass through your land. We'll not pass through a field or a vineyard or drink water from a well. We'll go along the king's highway. Now this is probably not, considering if you looked at this on the map, not the king's highway as in the king of Edom's highway. This is the king's highway, which is one of two primary roads, okay, that run from Babylon to Egypt, 
okay? This is a main road, a main thoroughfare. Currently, I'm watching the second season of The Crown about Queen Elizabeth. And in the premiere of the second season uh, is when the, uh, the leader of Egypt takes over control of the Suez Canal and kicks the Brits out, okay? It's kind of the first major piece in the crumbling of the British Empire. But the reason why that's so significant is because that's a major thoroughfare of commerce. That's what the King's Highway was. There may be taxes, and there may be control, and there may be these things, but it's a much more significant thing than any kingdom can take credit for. It's a public thoroughfare, okay? And so they say, we'll stick to the main road. We're not going to traipse through, you know, your tulip garden. We're not going to eat anything out of your orchards or your vineyards. We won't even stop and get water from your well, okay? And so, uh, verse 18, but Edom said to him, you shall not pass through lest I come out with a sword against you. He says, go ahead and try. My armies are ready and waiting. Okay. Verse 19, the people of Israel said to him, we will go up by the highway, and if we drink of your water and my livestock, we will pay for it. Let us only pass through on foot, nothing more. In other words, here he says, we'll take full liability for the people. We'll recompense you for anything that goes wrong. Okay. But, verse 20, he said, you shall not pass through and Edom came out against them with a large army and with a strong force. Thus Edom refused to give Israel passage through his territory, so Israel turned away from him. Now, that will become significant later. But effectively here, Israel is forced to go around, and this negative relationship with Edom continues. Okay? So, when Israel does settle into the land, <coughs> when they live there for hundreds of years, after King David and King Solomon and their descendants, all the way at the very end when the tribes of Judah are taken by the people of Babylon. The minor prophet of Obadiah, one of the shorter books, criticizes the people of Edom, uh, of Edom for basically setting up stands and cheering the plundering of Israel, encouraging the incoming soldiers and just rejoicing in their destruction. Okay, and so this, this deep-seated hatred that, to some degree, goes all the way back to Esau himself against Jacob. It flows into their people and maintains, and so here it takes a significant step forward. But remember the Edomites, we will return to them. Uh, then verse 22, they journeyed from Kadesh, and the people of Israel, the whole congregation, came to Mount Hor. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron at Mount Hor, on the border of the land of Edom, let Aaron be gathered to his people. For he shall not enter the land that I have given to the people of Israel, because you rebelled against my command at the waters of Meribah. And so God gives preemptive explanation of the fact that Aaron's going to die. He reminds him of the judgment. Uh, that we saw at the waters of Mirabah and why he's not going to enter into the land. And he says, now's the time. Now, significantly, Moses also will have an appointment on the calendar where God says, okay, Moses, it's time to go. Unlike what we see with Miriam, with both Moses and Aaron, they're called away to die. In fact, we will see at the end of Deuteronomy that it says that God buried Moses. Okay, what happens between Moses and God is so intimate, there's no witnesses of where he's buried. 
But here he says, all right, Aaron, it's time. And then notice how this plays out. So they're, they're near this mountain named Mount Hor. And so <clears throat> verse 24 again, I want to touch on one thing. When it says, let Aaron be gathered to his people. Okay? That phrase is only used in the first five books of the Bible. And it's only used of a handful of people. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, and Aaron. Okay. And what does it mean to be gathered to his people? There was a tendency for a while to say that this meant buried in the family tomb. Okay. Now, that's definitely not what happens here. They're out, they're wandering, they're in the way. And it's also clearly not what happens with Joseph. Because he's not buried in the family tomb. He's, uh, he's put in a sarcophagi in Egypt. And he's left there until Israel... In fact, he's being carried right now in our pages until he can be buried in the promised land. If you look consistently, here's what you'll see about the phrase gathered to his people, that it happens after death and before burial. You see, this is how the Old Testament expresses their understanding of an afterlife. Gathered to his people as in goes to dwell with his ancestors. What comes to be known later in the Old Testament as we see in one of Jesus's parables as Abraham's bosom okay the recognition here is um, that gathering to the people is um, entering in to to the promises of God eternal life if you will in fact it's probably directly contrasted with and he shall be cut off from his people okay and so how is this going to look how does this happen and so it says here, uh, verse 24, Aaron will be gathered to his people because of the judgment. Verse 25, take Aaron and Eleazar, his son, and bring them up to Mount Hor. Okay, so they climb the mountain. Moses, Eleazar, and Aaron. Verse 26, strip Aaron of his garments and put them on Eleazar, his son, and Aaron shall be gathered to his people, and he shall die there. And so they go up the mountain. Eleazar goes with them, and then... Before Aaron dies, all of these garments of the high priest are taken off and Eleazar puts them on and Aaron dies. And as they enter back into the camp, the high priest enters into the camp, but now it's Eleazar. Okay. And so the significance of this is twofold. One, uh, I think, is very well put by Warren Wiersbe at the end of Deuteronomy in his commentary when he says, God buries the worker and the work goes on. Right? And so for Aaron, there's Eleazar. The role of high priest, the priesthood entirely, is going to continue through the lineage of sons. Aaron has screwed up, but God's going to continue to work. Israel has messed up, but their children under the age of 20 will enter into his promises. Aaron passes on, but the ministry continues. And it'll be the same with Moses. Moses, instead of taking one of his sons, appoints Joshua as leader over Israel, lays hands on Joshua, and then Moses dies, and they follow Joshua. This is very important for us to remember because we're relatively attached to people. We recognize the amazing things that God can do through people who, like we just talked about, like we see in Aaron, are sinners, but were greatly used in our lives by God. And sometimes we go, what now? What happens now? 
how can I can continue without this support, without this influence in my life? But there's always someone else to step into the garments. And so this happens, it happens privately and it happens quietly. And so notice what happens in verse 28. Moses stripped Aaron of his garments, put them on Eleazar, and Aaron died there on the top of the mountain. Then Moses and Eleazar came down from the mountain. So they come without Aaron. And then verse 29, And when all the congregation saw that Aaron had perished, all the house of Israel wept for Aaron 30 days. Okay, now they didn't see Aaron's dead body. They saw his son in his garments. Okay, and so they take up 30 days of mourning, recognizing here the significance of Aaron as a leader. Chapter 21. When the Canaanite, the king of Arad, who lived in the Negev, the Negev is the area to the south of Israel. You may remember it from the book of Genesis. It's where um, Abraham ends up. Um, when he hears that Israel was coming by way of Atherim, uh, he fought against Israel and he took some of them captive. Okay. And so what happens is this Canaanite king hears that they're nearby and he raids them. Right? He sends out a raiding party, attacks them, and takes captives. Okay. This is different than the Edomite happening that we just had where they come to the borders and they say, can we come through? And Edom says no and threatens a show of force. Here, they're just moving along. They come near to this territory and this king takes advantage of them. And so, verse 2, Israel vowed a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed give this people into my hand, then I will devote their cities to destruction. Now, the phrase there, devote to destruction, means something very particular. You see, uh, Israel's army was kind of like a volunteer firefighter force, okay? They weren't on staff. They weren't paid. In fact, most ancient armies weren't paid. What they got was the spoils of war. But as we'll see in the book of Joshua, when they come into the land and they go against Jericho, that city is to be devoted to destruction. They're not to take any spoil for themselves. It all goes to God. What they say here is in response to this action, we won't take a cent for ourselves. Okay? This is not just they took advantage of us. Now we want to take advantage of them. This is about justice. And so, verse 3, the Lord heeded the voice of Israel and gave over the Canaanites, and they devoted them and their cities to destruction. So the name of the place was called Horma, uh, which means destruction. Okay. Now, this is significant because this is Israel's first military victory with the new generation. In fact, we're going to roll out here, and there's going to be more of that leading up to the promised land. Okay, they're not going to experience defeat until their second battle in Ai, and it will be specifically because they don't do this rightly. It's supposed to be Jericho's devoted to destruction, but a man named Achan takes a couple of garments and a piece of silver, and instead of giving them to the Lord, he hides them for himself. And so they fail at Ai because of their disobedience here. But here is a significant point because this is a military victory. Now, there will be more of that in just a second, but first we get one of the most interesting and important stories in all of the book of Numbers, verse 4. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the people became impatient on the way, and the people spoke against God and against Moses. 
Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Once again, there's irony in what they say. Which is it? Do you hate what you're eating or you have nothing to eat, right? We both loathe this worthless food and we have none. But they're complaining here is this pattern and there's been this escalation of judgment. And so verse 6, the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. Now two things there with the phrase fiery serpents, okay? First off, the word fiery might be talking about poison, talking about burning sensations, okay? Um, and then second, the word serpent here is not the one that's usually used. It's actually the word seraph, where we get seraphim, okay? And so it's somewhat of a unique word, but here's what's really interesting. This land, because of Mount Hor and the Red Sea and the Negev uh, and the land of Edom, we generally know where it is, and we have much later records about snakes being a serious problem. Okay. There are 20th century explorers that talk about going through what they called a plague of snakes while they were here and it getting so bad that as they walk through the wilderness, they have to whack at every bush because of the, uh, the cobras and the puff vipers and a few other things. Okay. And so significantly, this is what you would expect to be around, but it hits as they're complaining, um, these fiery serpents. And notice what happens. They bit the people so that many people of Israel died. Okay, they succumbed to the poison. Verse 7, the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned for we've spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord so that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. So notice here, they start wrong. They really do sin, but they respond in confession, in repentance, uh, and in asking God to fix it through prayer. But here's where things get interesting. Verse 8, the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. Okay. And so here's the solution. He says, anyone who is dealing with the poison, anyone who's been bitten, I want you to make a statue of a snake, of a fiery serpent, of one like this, I want you to set it on a pole in the middle of the camp and anyone who looks to it will be healed. Okay. Now, lots of the healings and, uh, and solutions that happen in the book of Numbers and throughout the Old Testament are unique. But this one is outright abnormal. Okay. You may remember, according to the book of Exodus chapter 20, in the Ten Commandments itself, Israel was to make no carved image Okay. And so when you came into the tabernacle and you get to the ark, it's basically a place where an idol would go and there's no idol there. And here he says, I want you to make out of copper or bronze a serpent. I want you to put it on a pole and when the people look at it, they will be saved. Even the significance of this act is lost on us when we try and parse the symbolism. The serpent is the problem why is this statue of a serpent set things right? How in the world does just looking at something make you healthy? The whole thing is somewhat intriguing. Now, when we look at it, there is something significant to mention, and it's in verse 9. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone and he looked at the bronze serpent, he would live. Okay. 
And so we're told here that he makes this serpent out of bronze. Now, geographically, that's also interesting because we know of a long history of copper mines in the area. It's just super interesting how these things line up. But here's the point. Bronze is constantly, symbolically, a metal that involves judgment. Okay? And so sometimes God talks about making his face like bronze against his enemies. And so, so we have the serpent and we have bronze being this picture of judgment, and the two seem to coincide, but there's nothing here, and the story just goes on. It says, and the people were healed, healed and they move on. Now, that's not the end of this bronze serpent. And there's one last thing I should mention. The words for bronze and serpent are incredibly close. Okay? One is nushta, and the other one is like nahishta. Okay? And so a, a bronze serpent is a nushta nahishta. Okay. Now, the reason why that's significant is because later in Israel's history, the people of Israel find this bronze serpent and they begin to worship it. They see it as significant. It's become a religious relic. It's like, oh, this has healing powers. Okay. Now, that imagery, we still understand today. Have you ever paid attention to the symbolism of hospitals? Have you ever seen the caduceus? What is it? It's a serpent on a pole. It comes from this story. But they saw that as being the item of healing. And so the king, during the reforms, takes it and he breaks it. And he says that this is Nehushtan. He takes that same word and he changes it to just worthless. Okay? So there's a play on words flowing through this whole thing. But here's what makes this the most significant. What's probably the best known verse in all the Bible? John 3.16. Right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only and begotten son, and whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. But how familiar are you with John 3, 14 and 15? You see, Jesus in John chapter 3 is having a conversation with a religious leader by the name of Nicodemus. It's happening at night because Nicodemus is embarrassed to be known as somebody who's interested in Rabbi Jesus. And they're having this conversation about the kingdom of God. But listen to how, what Jesus says here in John 3, 14 and 15. Uh, 13 for context. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. He says, in the same way as the bronze serpent in the book of Numbers, so also the Son of Man will be lifted up, and those who look to him will have eternal life then it's for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, and whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. The context of that explanation Jesus makes is this illustration, the illustration of the bronze serpent. He says, if you want to understand why I've come, read Numbers chapter 21. If you want to know what it's like, read Numbers chapter 1. Now, when we put those things together, that Jesus says, this is like me, then I think we have reason to look at what's going on here in a significant way, okay? Unlike other cultures, like Egypt, for example, the serpent is not a positive image to the Old Testament Jew. Can you imagine why, right? That's where things go south in the very beginning with a serpent. 
Okay. So what I would suggest to you, and it's merely a suggestion, is that the symbolism of this happening has to do with judgment on the serpent. That that's why it's a bronze one, that there's a recognition here. And so it's profound when Jesus connects himself with that because it's not the serpent that finds himself on a pole. It's not the death of the devil that Jesus has come to do. He's not going to crucify Satan. It's himself on the cross. Now the reason why I think those things go together is because of something that Paul says when he's speaking to the church of Corinth. And this is what he says. He says, speaking of Jesus, that he who knew no sin became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. The parsing of that is significant. He doesn't say he who knew no sin became a sinner. He doesn't say he who knew no sin became sinful. He says he who knew no sin became sin. The way that Paul looks at what happens on the cross, he says there's a significant way in where Jesus takes on himself all of our sin and experiences the full judgment of that reality. Okay. And by looking to that, Jesus tells us in John chapter 3, we can have eternal life by trusting in that act. Okay, And so clearly what we see here is the same, same thing we see in John chapter 3 that the Bible just calls faith. What is it that heals these people? Is it some sort of medicinal quality? No. They don't even touch the thing. They just look to it. Luther has an important comment on this. He says, what is it that makes this whole thing effective? He says, clearly it's the word of God. Because God says, if you look to it, you'll be healed. They, in faith, look to it and they experience healing. Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of God, Romans chapter 10. And so this becomes a perfect illustration of us placing our faith in Jesus where he endures the judgment and we gain the benefits. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God through faith. Verse 10. The people of Israel set out and camped in Oboth. And they set out from Oboth and camped in Ea Erbrim in the wilderness that's opposite Moab towards the sunrise. From there they set out and camped to the valley of Zered. From there they set out and camped on the other side of Arnon, which is in the wilderness that extends from the border of the Amorites. For the Arnon is the border of Moab between Moab and the Amorites. I know that doesn't mean anything to you, but if you were to pull out an ancient map and chart your way, they're moving back towards the promised land now. Okay, They've come full circle in their wandering, and these dots are just to show you trajectory. If you drew a line through them, they point at Canaan. They point at the promised land. They point at Israel. So they're moving back. And then notice verse 14. Therefore it said in the book of the wars of the Lord, Waheb and Sufa and the valleys of Arnon and the slopes of the valleys that extend to the seed of Ar that leans to the border of Moab. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't get a lot out of that poem, right? It's basically just locations. In fact, it's such an obscure um, reference, it seems to be missing whatever happens next. It's like giving the setting. It's on a dark and stormy night, and that's it. But what's more significant for us is that it mentions that this is recorded in the books of the wars of the Lord. 
This is one of many occasions where the Bible references other books. And so, for example, uh, in, book of, in the book of 1 Samuel, it says, as is recorded in the book of Jasher. Or if you read the book of First and Second Kings, which in the Hebrew Bible is a single book, it mentions both, as is recorded in the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah, which we have, it's known as First and Second Chronicles, but it also mentions, as is recorded in the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel, which we do not have. When you get to the New Testament, Paul blows our minds by quoting other things that don't even have a Jewish background, but a pagan one. And so he quotes both a, uh, uh, a Cretan poet as well as a Greek playwright, and then when we get to the book of Jude, it actually quotes a, uh, a book that was written between the closing of the Old Testament and the beginning of the history in the Gospels, that 400 years between the Testaments, known as the book of Enoch, okay, this apocryphal book that looks back at the character of Enoch in Genesis. Um, and so these quotations happen throughout the Bible, but we have none of them anymore except the book of Enoch. Is, at least if the version we have is similar to the version that's quoted in Jude. And so there's always this question that says, are we saying then, is this a recognition that the Bible is incomplete, that there are scriptures that are missing, that we only have what was uh, preserved, but there were other things that were written that were significant. And I think we have to recognize that consistently, the Bible makes a distinction between scripture and non. And so, like I said, Paul quotes a pagan playwright, not because he thinks God was divinely speaking through him, but because the audience he's speaking to knows the quote, and so it's worth referencing. If you listen to me preach long enough, I'll probably quote a sitcom. I don't think it's divinely inspired. It's just helpful for illustrating, okay? Also, it's worth remembering that uh, the Old Testament is originally written to people who would have had these documents. We're not the only ones who have ever read the Book of Numbers, the people, as they went into the land, went into the book of Numbers, and they probably were familiar with the book of the wars of the Lord, this other document that most likely scholars believed record the poetry of the victories that God gave Israel. Even, um, so all of these ones are referenced without having kind of the, um, as the scriptures say that we see in other places, but that's the other thing. When the Bible does reference the Bible, like when the New Testament quotes the Old Testament, the way it does it is significant. It uses the word scripture. It puts it in the words, uh, in the voice of the Lord. We know that Peter, the apostle, was familiar with the writings of Paul. And this is what he says. He says, look, there are many encouraging things in the writings of Paul. And some of them are hard to understand. And those who are faulty twist them as they do the rest of scripture. That's what it says in Second Peter. He says, the letters of Paul... Like all other parts of the Bible, like all of God's word, people use wrongly. Peter sees the writings of Paul's as scripture. Paul does the same thing with the gospel of Luke. Paul is trying to make a point to Timothy, and he says, as the scriptures say, and then he quotes from Deuteronomy, and then he quotes from Luke's gospel. He puts Deuteronomy and Luke on par. Remember that Luke is a travel partner of Paul. Okay. Even the way Paul speaks about his own writings, he makes this distinction. And so, although it is interesting and it would be uh, intriguing to have these documents on hand and they would help us understand the Bible, that's not the same thing as saying they're missing parts of the Bible. Okay. Verse 16, there they continued to beer. Beer is just a word that means well, side note. 
That is the well which the Lord said to Moses, gather the people together so that I may give them water. Then Israel sang this song, spring up, O well, sing to it. The well that the princes made, that the nobles of, uh, of the people dug with their scepter and with their staff. And so they come to this place and they dig. And once again, this is of historical significance. It's validating of the text. And here's why. Because the geography that's mentioned here, this land that here is called Beer, uh, is a land where once again we have historical records of relatively unique wells, okay? Ones that could be spotted because they were underneath gravel. And so they were easily accessible and easy to find. And so when it mentions here that they dug with, uh, <coughs> they dug with their scepter and with their staffs, you know, it's pointing to what we would expect to find in this area. Now, there's one other question, and I want to address it really quickly, which is this. Are we honestly to believe here that the rulers of Israel were on their hands and knees doing the digging of the wells? Right? Do you see why it reads that way? The nobles of the people dug with their scepters and with their staffs. This may be just like recognizing that sometimes when you're in authority, you do things through the commissioning of others, and we just collapse that idea, right? If the, uh, if the highest level of military um, said he was going to war, it doesn't mean he's on the front lines. But it also may be just the profound... Okay, think of in the movies when somebody strikes oil. Do you care what a mess you're making? Right? No, you're celebrating and it's joyous. That seems to be the tone of the poem. The idea here is they were so excited to have water that everybody is in on it. Okay? But nonetheless, we see once again God faithfully providing for their needs. And from the wilderness they went on to Matna, verse 19, and from Matna to Naliel, from Naliel to Bamoth, and Bamoth to the valley, lying in the region of Moab, by the top of Pigsa that looks down on the desert. Then Israel sent messengers to Sihon, king of the Amorites, saying, let me pass through your land. Okay? So they take the same approach, this time not with Edom, which they could go around, but with, uh, with the land of the Amorites, specifically King Sihon. And on a map here, if I understand this correctly, this is not like Edom. This is a relatively narrow strip of land. There's no going around. It's like the old children's book. You can't go over it. You can't go under it can't go around it, you have to go through it, okay? And so there's a significance in this that they can't keep moving to the promised land because of the way that they've taken unless they go through here. And so the approach is the same. It's diplomatic. Verse 22, let me pass through your land. We will not turn aside to the field or vineyard. We will not drink water of a well. We will go by the king's highway until we have passed through your territory. But Sion would not allow Israel to pass through his territory. <coughs> Notice this. He gathered all his people together and went out against Israel to the wilderness and came to Jahaz and fought against Israel. Okay, so he doesn't threaten them here, he just attacks. And so, verse 24, Israel defeated him with the edge of the sword and took possession of his land from Arnon to Jabbok as far as the Ammonites for the border of the Ammonites was strong. This is right on the border of Israel, but it's not in the promised land, okay? Verse 25, Israel took all these cities and Israel settled in all these cities of the Amorites and Heshbon and all its villages for Heshbon was the city of Sihon, the king of the Amorites who had fought against the former king of Moab and taken all his land out of his hand as far as the Arnon. Therefore, the ballad singers say, come to Heshbon, let it be built. Let the cities of Sihon be established for fire came out from Heshbon, 
flame from the city of Sion. It devoured Ar of Moab. It swallowed the heights of Arnon. Woe to you, O Moab. You are undone, O people of Chemosh. Okay, often uh, <coughs> the people of Israel are called the people of Jehovah. Chemosh is the god of the Ammonites, okay? And so that's what the title is there. He made his sons fugitives and his daughters captives to an Amorite king, Sihon, so we overthrew them. Heshbon as far as Dibon perished, and we laid waste as far as Nopha. Fire spread as far as Medba. So they take down King Sion uh, and his land, and they have another victory, verse 31. Thus Israel lived in the land of the Amorites, and Moses sent to spy out Jazer, and they captured its villages and depossessed the Amorites who were there. And they turned and went up by the way of Bashan, and Og, the king of Bashan, came out against them, he and all the people, to battle at Edri. But the Lord said to Moses, Do not fear him, for I have given him into your hand, and all his people in his land, and you shall do to him as you do to Sihon, king of the Amorites, who lived at Heshbon. So they defeated him and his sons and all his people until he had no survivor left, and they possessed his land." So don't miss what happens there. They're continuing to press out into the Amorite kingdom and take ownership of it. And a neighboring people, this time uh, this king's name is Og, uh, he attacks them, recognizing they might be a threat to his land. And God says, don't worry about it. I'll give them over as well. And so now they have this large territory and they begin to dwell here. Now, this is significant, not just because it's um, these ramping up victories leading to what's going to happen in the book of Joshua, but also because eventually Gad and Naphtali and Reuben, no, right, there we go, Gad and Manasseh, there we go. Uh, these tribes, when they get to the land, they're going to go, you know what, we're kind of happy on this side of the river. We kind of like the land we have, so we're not going to go in. And Moses first says this, okay, but that doesn't get you out of helping to take the land. He says, but leave your families and your cattle here, and then when we're done, you can come and you can settle into the land. This is that land, okay? This is the land that becomes um, part of those tribes. But what we're seeing here in, Israel, uh, in the book of Numbers is structurally significant, and this is where I'll finish. What we saw in the beginning of Numbers was as they traveled, things getting worse and worse, okay? And that kind of bottoms out with the rebellion of Moses, right? Where the sin works all the way up the food chain, so now all the adults of Israel will not enter into the land. Um, and it's been progressive, and it's getting worse and worse. But now we're starting to move in the other direction. Now, it won't be without blips on the radar, but the significance here is uh, that structurally it's starting to lead up to God's faithfulness. It's not that he now has a sinless people, um, but structurally the book looks kind of, like, uh, kind of like a V. Okay, And so we're starting to ramp up, and it should be developing in us as readers excitement for what's to come. Now there's a huge intermission known as the book of Deuteronomy before there's any real action. But that's where we're headed. So, to just conclude with a single thought, the single thought is that, <coughs> that what God is doing with Israel is significant for us for two reasons. One, because it's the prequel. We're seeing God constantly on the move towards the promises that we know as being messianic. 
And so it begins with the promises of Abraham. It's moving towards that fulfillment. We're watching in that. We hit a major detour, 40 years in the wilderness, but it's on track and moving towards the sending of the Messiah. And second, along the way, God provides signposts, not just telling us the Messiah is coming, but when he comes, this is what it will be like. And this is the easiest to see in the book of Numbers, and it starts to become significant more and more as we go on to eventually where it's like, yeah, that king you have, David, he's a perfect illustration. Here's what I'm going to do, right? There will be others, but Numbers is when they start to pile up. They, there's some in Genesis, there's some in Exodus, but here is where God really goes, let me help you understand where I'm going. And so as you read in Numbers, as you read the rest of the Old Testament, keep your eyes open for things that point to Jesus. And especially as you read the New Testament, keep your eyes open for the New Testament pointing to the Old Testament pointing to Jesus. Okay, let's pray. God, we thank you for, for sending your Messiah and where whereas those promises were long yet to be fulfilled and far distant for Israel, we get to live in those place, places where the New Testament says the prophets longed. We get to live. And so we thank you for that. But I also know, Lord, that the New Testament is the culmination of the things in the Old Testament, but the Old Testament also helps us to understand and appreciate the New so I pray that you'd make us better readers of your scriptures. And I also ask, Lord, that you would cultivate in us a true and active faith. That just as Israel looked to that bronze serpent on the pole and was healed, we would recognize that we also need salvation. And we would take your word that says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. And in believing that we would have life. Pray this in your name. Amen.